0: Welcome to this Innovation Forum podcast with me, Ian Welsh. I'm delighted that in this podcast we're going to be discussing some of the findings from a new report, Regenerative Agriculture, an Opportunity for Business and Society to Restore Degraded Land in Africa. This report is a product of the Africa Regenerative Agriculture Study Group of 2021, and it was commissioned by the International Union for Conservation of Nature for the UN High Level Champions with support and analysis from Vivid Economics. The new report is published on October 25th. And joining me to discuss this, I'm delighted to have Nicholas Ambanya, who's the COO of Twiga Foods in Kenya. We have Cassandra Austin, who's a senior economist at Vivid Economics. And we have Joe Robertson, who is a senior advisor in sustainable finance at EAT and a member of the secretariat of the Good Food Finance Network. Welcome to you all. Cassandra, perhaps I can turn to you first. Can you give us some context for this report? And also, just define for us what exactly we mean by regenerative agriculture.
1: Essentially, recent research has shown that land degradation has had and will have severe costs to crop production and supply chains in Africa. But what's been less clear from the research is the solution to this. And so this report really presents the case for regenerative agriculture playing a role within the broader land restoration activities and uh, the potential for it to create benefits for smallholder farmers, business, and society more broadly. So I guess, what is regenerative agriculture? Broadly, it encompasses sort of both conservation agriculture and sustainable agroforestry techniques as well. And so these can be practices such as crop diversification, shade tree planting, use of cover crops, reduced tillage, and many more. And these techniques really improve crop yields for farmers in particular through increased soil nutrient and organic content, which reduces the need for fertilizers. Uh, but they also reduce soil erosion, improve water retention and have biodiversity benefits as well. So all of these reduce costs to farmers as well.
0: Give us some of the headline findings from the new report.
1: Yeah, sure. so the report has sort of three key areas. The first one showcases several case studies of businesses in sub-Saharan Africa which have already successfully begun to implement these regenerative techniques. And so these are already reaching over 170,000 farmers across the region, with increases in yields of up to 300% in some cases. And then the second part of the report looks at the compelling amount, really, of academic evidence of these benefits, of the practices across the value chain. So it looks at farmers, all the way to sort the of end of the food chain, down to consumers, as well as the positive effect on livelihoods and climate adaptation. And then last part of the report, we undertook scenario modelling and we produced estimates of the size of the future opportunity for regenerative agriculture in sub-Saharan Africa. And that looks across economic impacts, uh, food security and climate mitigation.
0: What are some of the potential impacts then from regenerative agriculture in Africa, do you think?
1: Yeah, so there are a range of numbers that we produce. But for example, you know, under our regenerative agriculture scenario, the report shows that These practices could be adding around $70 billion per year of gross value to the sub-Saharan region by 2040. And that's for context, that's around one fifth of the current agricultural GDP of sub-Saharan Africa. And that could be supporting around uh, upwards of five million full-time jobs. And then under other modelling, if an average of just half of farming in sub-Saharan Africa by 2040 used regenerative agricultural techniques, we estimate this could have annual savings to farmers uh, across the region as high as $17 billion annually, and also reduce up to a third of what is the current agricultural sector emissions for that region. So we looked at all that. We also looked at the increase in yields and the adaptation benefits, which are really critical for reducing food supply shocks in the area, and that has significant impacts on food security
0: as well. Great, so obviously huge potential for scale, but obviously it's still quite a long way to go. What would regenerative agriculture look like on the ground then? Perhaps you can give us some examples of different contexts, obviously a very diverse continent.
1: Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I think the case studies are really useful for that in that they look at a lot of different examples across different types of crops, different types of regions. And obviously the report's focus is on sub-Saharan Africa and the numbers are sort of tailored to that. And I think that's really useful in particular because we particularly see significant benefits in terms of regenerative agriculture pushing towards the twin goals of land restoration and food security at the same time. That's really useful. I mean, I think that the findings are also really broadly more applicable when it comes to thinking about the types of benefits to both business and broader society. And the report's really useful in that regard because it just sort of looks to increase that evidence base, informing a range of different stakeholders, food supply chain businesses, public decision makers, and that sort of thing.
0: Joel, perhaps I can turn to you now. Can you give us your thoughts on the report's findings and, and how they fit into the broader challenges of what's required to drive food systems transformation?
2: You ask a few very big questions there, Ian. What's required to drive food systems transformation? At the risk of oversimplifying it, we need to invert the economics of food and we need to do it without disrupting the delicate economic balance that keeps most people going day to day. We can't have food prices spiking all over the world and have a smooth transition. Fortunately, where regenerative agriculture comes in is we can improve livelihoods for producers. We can diversify economies across the value chain. We can help to foster action toward the sustainable development goals, all of which ultimately play a role in making a sustainable food system transformation feasible. And I think the report's findings showing the potential overall benefit to incomes at the local level, to national economic output, and to the production through the food system. These findings are critically important to help the policy realm and the financial realm respond to understand the opportunity. And maybe a final point on where these things come together. The Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero has brought together a number of financial institutions that collectively are committing to align $88 trillion in assets and wealth holdings with goals, in theory, on a net zero science-based timeline, which means 50% decarbonization of their operations and value chains within the next nine years. In order to do that, there's going to have to be a massive movement of capital, probably unprecedented in the history of the world. It's not all new money. It's there. It's going to go to something. And a lot of those things that it's going to go to in the status quo are bad for the planet, bad for people. By realigning that finance, by realigning assets under management in the private sector, sovereign wealth funds, public sector subsidies, incentives for trade, by realigning all of those things with a better way of producing food, we can get very far down the road to meeting some of these climate and sustainability goals. And what this report shows is that regenerative agriculture, especially in regions that have had either a lower level of productivity in the food sector or consistent price shocks or consistent supply disruptions, or where there is a need for significant land restoration, regenerative agriculture provides a solution that's going to be economically viable, it's going to provide financial return, and it's going to lead to a more inclusive food system and food economy.
0: What do you think is the likelihood of this all coming together? I mean, obviously it's it's huge transformation as you say it's required. What's the likelihood of it happening and what does the kind of path look like to get there?
2: I'm not going to speak from the point of view of scenario modeling about the likelihood that we get there. It's hard to do that with political decision making. And it's also hard to do that in terms of business model innovation, timelines, those kind of things. But given the fact that there are challenges in those two areas, we can say it's not going to be easy to transform the entire food system of the world. We can say regenerative agriculture is going to be one of the levers that makes it a lot easier. But then there are obstacles there too. There are big industrial supply chains that have built themselves around the goal of essentially moving value off the land and onto their balance sheets. That is logical when you think about how finance works. But it is supremely illogical when you recognize that it's harming so many people around the world and it's undermining our future. That has to change. There's no question about the fact that that has to change. It is an operational imperative. The financial system can't continue to treat food systems that way. We need more value back on the land. We need more value in the hands of stakeholders, consumers, communities, and especially small producers. We can't have small producers living perennially on a knife's edge where they bear all of the cost and risk and big institutions far away reap all of the benefits. Unless we change that dynamic, we're going to have a situation that's essentially getting worse and worse. Given all of that, that doesn't mean the powers that be are going to rush to make the changes they should we could have a disastrous situation on our hands if climate change plays out and bread baskets fail and agricultural production slumps but i think we have a lot of the evidence if not all of the evidence that we need to show what can be done to make these changes and so just the way the financial sector public private and multilateral institutions can support these changes is to begin to require that when you make big new investments You demonstrate that within that money that's going to move, you're able to show an enhanced output for sustainable development, an enhanced output for restoring nature, for building soil biomass, which has a cascade effect through the financial system. If you build soil biomass, the land becomes more resilient. That means that it's easier to insure, It's easier to change practice. It's easier to adapt and put a new crop in when one crop fails those things have cascade effects that make an entire economy more stable. And, you know, we've just this week heard from the G20 finance ministers and central bank governors that they would like the IMF to establish a resilience and sustainability trust to be able to make sure that those kind of standards are part of the way that we finance national economies. So put all those things together. And I think we're going to get there eventually, but The speed at which we get there is critical. And I I think from the perspective of financial decision makers and policymakers, one of the big things that this report does is it shows that regenerative agriculture makes it easier and it makes it easier to go fast.
0: It does feel like we are finding now ways that these problems can be solved. It doesn't mean that the problems themselves aren't any smaller, but that there are ways in which these problems can be engaged with. Nicholas, what is your view then of the potential impact of regenerative agriculture in your context in Kenya? Perhaps give us a quick introduction just to your business, but then give us some insight into the impact of regenerative agriculture in Kenya.
3: For a start, uh, I work for Trigger Foods as the Chief Production Officer. What Tiger Foods uh, sought out or seeks out to do in Kenya is a it's a digital marketplace where we are aggregating demand in urban uh, cities, starting with Kenya and we are going to spread across the African uh, continent. While making this connection between producers and consumers, we seek to create efficiencies by eliminating waste in the middle, waste in terms of um, additional costs in terms of logistics, poor pricing structures, and anything else. Where we sit now with regard to the topic at hand is that while a company like us trigger foods, we've eliminated middlemen, so we work with farmers directly. We have created efficiency around logistics by having a robust transportation system that aggregates products at the farmer level, delivers to the cities, and then distributes to the various retail outlets for consumer on taking. We've done all that, but during and post-COVID period, one thing that has come out very clearly is that we are now working or dealing with a price-sensitive market. Remember, our aim is to be able to supply or avail affordable quality food bro, quality food at affordable prices. So the issue of affordability comes into play. So, and as I was saying, as, as much as we've done, by digitizing the process and eliminated waste, eliminated inefficiencies, there is one area that we've not been able to solve, and that is the pricing at farm level. What we've seen degenerative or the wrong way of doing agriculture has done, it's linked to productivity. So when wrong practices have been done, poor soils that are being tilled, poor methods of cultivation, what we have experienced now is that there is no productivity at the farm level. And what does low productivity do? it actually increases the cost of production. And that stands out as an impediment right now for us achieving our aim of being able to supply to our customers good quality food that's affordable. So speaking to the topic at hand, what regenerative agriculture will have as an impact on our marketplace is that this will improve productivity at farm level. When productivity improves at farm level, we'll be able to have product Farm gate cost reducing significantly. When farm gate cost or farm gate price reduces significantly, this then enabled us to avail this product to the population at an affordable price. And therefore, more uptake of nutritious foods will be seen to rise significantly. There will be more food traded in the more food uptake and there be more growth in that area of business in terms of agricultural food. That is a direct impact of regenerative agriculture. Today, we are dealing with it as an an issue that we need to. And we are having initiatives as a company saying, how do we improve productivity? We are talking to experts all over the world. And now, I see regenerative agriculture is one approach that we are now giving it. And when we spoke last in the last conference, we looked at many, many things. And although being marketplace and e-commerce business, we've been forced to go down and attend to the primary production because if we don't get the primary production done well, the hope and the dream of delivering affordable food will not be achieved. Last time we talked about it, we talked about, you know, working with stakeholders, observing global standards, crop rotation, issues of cover crops, issues of rational use of pesticides and fertilizers, minimum tillage, among other things that are being done to do that. So that will be the impact of genetic agriculture on the marketplace.
0: I guess what you're saying is that you see introducing regenerative agriculture practices as a way of bringing down the cost per product of individual products, uh, agriculturals, but at the same time, increasing farmer and grower incomes. And then there are efficiencies for all different parts of the value chain. Increasing productivity means that farmer incomes can go up at the same time as reducing overall costs to consumers, which leads to, as you say, a greater uptake of nutritious food via your marketplaces. How do you think that grower communities will welcome such a change?
3: We're already experiencing this. As I said now, we've had cases where farmers are stuck with the product at farmer level because the product cannot be uptaken, especially during the last two years of COVID-19. And now many farmers are actually saying, what do we do? The discussions we're having around genetic agriculture are being received very, very positively. But the farmers desire to know what to be done. Of course, this part of the world in Africa, one of the gaps that we have is the skills, knowledge and technology, you know, like that. So the question is now farmers are saying, how do we do it? How do we get it right? Like that, you know, can we be taught? It is coming in to solve a problem that farmers are experiencing right now, facing hopelessness in the future. You grow a product, you know, you it can be uptaken because you want it uptaken at the right price, depending or based on the cost of production. So if you produce a product at half a dollar, you want to sell it for more than half a dollar. And so that's why if this is going to make the farmer happy, because productivity and price, prices cost is a factor of productivity and yield and cost. If the yield goes up, then the farmer then can actually afford to lower his price or her price and still make money. But at the same time also, when the right practices of agriculture are being observed, even the cost of inputs go down. For example, if the soil has the right humus content, the soil has the right structure, the soil is better. The amount of fertilizer used to reduce the crops to be healthier so even the even amount of pesticides will reduce because the plants will be resistant by themselves. This is coming in a very compound approach whereby it to, in just in addition to increasing yields it also lowers cost of production and that gives the farmer a chance to offer what I would call a competitive price. Let me not call it a low price, a competitive price. A price that assures the farmer of his own income but also the price that propels the product to move at the marketplace and maintain the ecosystem that we're going. So yes, this is going to be received very positively. What we need is a, an approach that is, say, convincing in terms of profit stories, in terms of the expected outcomes, proper demos that show the farmers what to do, and as I said, an increased transfer of knowledge, skills and technology. A
0: final question to you at this stage. What do you think, of the extent that thinking about regenerative agriculture for growing communities in Kenya, Does that help them see their place within the broader context of climate change thinking? It gives them an example of the sort of things that they can do to help the overall
3: world movement towards decarbonisation and thinking in terms of really tackling climate change. This is a very, very effective way of actually introducing initiatives around climate change, the farmers. Climate change has been up there, you know, a mysterious topic that is being discussed at different levels. And it hasn't been broken down to simple understanding at farmer level. The genetic agriculture, in a very, very positive way, very interactive way, very convincing way, begins to introduce farmers, small-scale farmers, medium-scale farmers to actually practices of climate change and the things to initiatives against climate change and understanding what climate change is and the impact on the, on the food production. So, yes, this is a bridge. This is the conduit. Of actually introducing uh, uh, that topic, making it properly understood, and as you see, these practices, are the same of practices that needs to be undertaken, you know, to deal with climate change. Let me turn it back to Joe and Cassandra. Joe, could perhaps come to you
0: first, reflecting what you've heard from, from Nicholas, giving his examples of how this can work on the ground in Kenya. How far do you think that regenerative agriculture, more generally, will become the norm?
2: First of all, it's great to hear about the kind of work being done to enhance agency for producers. I think that's an undervalued area of innovation, enhancing agency for people at the margins of the economy. Nicholas mentioned that the bad way of doing things has been built around the idea of efficiency and productivity, but it hasn't been focused on the efficiency and productivity of the people at the margins. It sort of ignored them as if their well-being didn't matter for the overall economic system. Fixing that is actually a big part of fixing everything else. And to go to your question directly, I think regenerative systems have to become the mainstream norm, not only in agriculture, but in other areas. We have to be able to manage our economic life collectively in a way where we have built up a bigger base of resources than we started with. Otherwise, what are we doing? That's what industry and innovation is supposed to be about. But what we've been doing for 200 years is depleting natural resources, depleting the natural environment. If you look at the climate science reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, it's very difficult to see how we can maintain a stable climate system on planet Earth if we do not begin restoring nature. We've depleted it so much. We've lost so much biomass, living biomass, living carbon sinks in the ocean, in marine ecosystems, on land. In land-based ecosystems and on farmland over the last 50 years alone, that frankly, it's shocking we're not in a worse situation than we are already with climate change. So generative agriculture is part of the future. I think if you look at this report, you see another to kind of build on something Nicholas said about going from an abstract idea to actions that people understand are their actions to take, and that makes sense for them economically. You see a diversity of activities that are regenerative agriculture. It's not one thing in every place. It's many different types of actions that overlap to get you the regenerative result. And so I think at some point we're going to see a world where regenerative production systems are more the norm. We shouldn't, however, be surprised if some of the world's most powerful and capable institutions struggle to adapt because they haven't built themselves to deal with that reality. They haven't designed their institutional infrastructure to understand that the people with the least, the people at the margins, are some of the most valuable, are essential, as we've learned in the COVID pandemic, to say. They haven't built their systems to understand that the health and integrity of ecosystems is central to everything that would happen in the human economy. In all areas of climate action, we're struggling to adapt to that reality. We need to know the health and resilience of Earth systems in order to have a sense of where value starts and ends. That's going to be a big part of this. But I just want to say that in driving towards that future where regenerative production systems are the norm, we need to value those kinds of information that haven't been valued. The health and well-being of the people at the margins, the people who are putting things into the system that will make everyone else's life possible. We need to value the health and resilience of natural systems, which we also ignore and we treat as marginal or out there or other. We need to treat those things as our lifeblood. We need to treat them as the core of economic value. And those data systems that are going to achieve that are still being built. I'd say one missing piece where all of this kind of comes together is, can we invest? Can large institutions, development agencies invest in making sure that those kind of data systems actually are part of the lives of people who would never otherwise be able to access such technology. If we can do that, then we can make sure we have a food system that works and we can seriously contemplate addressing climate change. If we don't do that, the cost of our failure to make sure that that kind of data and information is accessible to everyone, used by everyone, and clearly building health and resilience in soils, in ecosystems, on land, Our failure to do that is going to cost far more than it would cost to just get those data systems in place and help create those new business models.
0: a stark choice facing this food and agriculture system for sure. Cassandra, perhaps I can turn back to you. How much do you agree with Joe's points around the fact that we are now moving from thinking in terms of abstract ideas to really now getting to grips with the actions that are required?
1: I'm very excited about the potential, to be honest. I try to be quite optimistic about it. I think we know that major changes to our agriculture and food systems are really critical, particularly to achieving key land restoration and climate goals. But, you know, you need both the public and private sector working together for this action. So for me, you know, not only can regenerative agriculture contribute to these land restoration and climate goals, but there is a clear business case for implementation of these practices at scale. This is a win-win for the agricultural sector. Businesses are already starting to do this, but the potential is really exciting because it shows that it's possible for agribusinesses to improve yields and build supply chain resilience, but simultaneously bring really substantial benefits to the smallholder farmers that they actually rely on as well and the broader society underneath that. I think that's really exciting.
0: Let me give a final word to Nicholas then. Nicholas, are you excited too? Do you think that the potential here is something that that is exciting
3: for you and the, the farmer communities that you work with? It is the hope. is the only remaining hope. If farmers are going to remain in business, especially what we've seen with the post-COVID-19, whereby incomes have been reduced, whereby salaries have been lost, jobs have been lost, and overall purchasing power of the consumer has been reduced significantly. If any farmer and farming business has to remain live, the cost of production at farm level must come down and not just come down, but come down drastically because people will only buy what they can afford. Really, and generative agriculture is the hope. It must be embraced, it must be supported, it must be implemented because I do not see any other way. It is productivity, productivity, and productivity that we need to work on. And as I say, the good aspect of generative agriculture is productivity in all aspects, productivity in yield productivity and cost optimization because when you have good soils you have things you use less inputs and things like that and yeah. there is safety for the farmer in terms of less chemical exposure I mean it's, it's a no round approach and, and so yes it has to be the, the way only way we as Trigger Foods pioneering you know primary sustainability at primary agriculture level we will push with this and with all the partners that are involved we've identified this one as one particular aspect that if we focus on it it will boost business, will boost income at farmer level, and will boost affordability of food, consumer
0: It's been a fascinating discussion and my thanks to Nicholas Ambanya, Cassandra Austin and Joe Robertson. Do check out the new report, Generative Agriculture, an opportunity for business and society to restore degraded land in Africa. There will be a link to the report in the podcast description. My thanks to the panel, my thanks also to the IUCN for their support of this podcast. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.